Welcome to our next episode on the Quorum Podcast, a podcast of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. In this brief episode, Coleman Ford and myself have a conversation with Dr. Matt Emerson. Especially as Holy Saturday approaches, his book on the descent of Jesus is a timely contribution for evangelicals to consider. This episode will be part one of two, where we merely highlight Matt's book and hear him talk about this topic. We hope you enjoy this conversation. It's really excited to uh, get together with some friends here uh, to talk about a really important topic within uh, the history of the church, theologically, biblically, uh, specifically, uh, we're thinking about um, the descent to the dead uh, clause that we have inherited within the Apostles' Creed uh, and how that correlates with uh, scriptural uh, testimony, biblical, theological, historical foundations to that. Uh, and specifically, we're super excited to have our friend uh, Matt Emerson here to talk about that. And as it's been uh, communicated in his book, He Descended to the Dead, an Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday, which was recently published on IVP. Uh, and so, Matt, we're really excited to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for letting me hop on. It's, uh, I'm glad to be here. Glad to talk to you guys. It's good to see people face to face, even if it is still virtually. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Time of COVID-19. So glad to do yeah. it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure our kids are going to grow up and they're going to be like touching other people's faces because they're not like quite <laughs> sure what that's about, you know, yeah. as they go out and uh, finally get out of their house, you know, after three years or however long we're going to be in home. <laughs> oh, um, that's so good. Yeah. Well, you know, we, again, this is just something that we want to introduce our listeners to is this idea of uh, Jesus's descent to the dead. Um, and you know, for some of our listeners, perhaps they are in churches uh, where this is, if they heard that, they would uh, maybe ask you to leave <laughs> or they would get really upset. Uh, others may be in churches where this is a normal part of their liturgy, their confession, where they would recite this uh, or something similar in uh, their church worship. But Matt, I'd love to hear what turns you on to this? What got you interested in this uh, specific facet of um, theology and specifically the, the descent. And uh, just tell us the history of that and kind of the journey of coming to this book. Sure. Well, there, there are at least a couple of ways that I came to be interested in writing this book. Uh, one of the ways was uh, during my doctoral work, uh, I was friends with a couple of Baptist turned Anglicans um, who began to ask me to read some books with them and um, also pray through the Book of Common Prayer with them. And alongside of that, I was introduced to something called the Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar. And in the context of the Scripture Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar, just in terms of just academic work, um, they, every year when they meet or any other time they meet, even if it's not at SBL, um, they start their meeting with a light liturgy. And so <clears throat> I was introduced in a couple of different ways towards the end of my PhD program to more liturgical forms. I should say reintroduced because I grew up in a mainline denomination, um, but I left that because of their views of scripture and Christ and went Southern Baptist um, and kind of left everything behind. And then, you know, my doctoral program I was reintroduced to, to liturgy in various ways. And so that, that set me on a path of, just really using the prayer book uh, for a guide to my daily Bible readings and prayer life. And during the course of that, I started reading every year in Holy Week, the prayer on the collect on Holy Saturday. 
And, you know, I, I thought to myself increasingly every year, why don't I ever, why didn't I ever hear about this growing up? And why don't I hear about it now? This is a, a beautiful prayer. Uh, there are a variety of them. I looked up other prayers. Like we never hear about Holy Saturday in, in evangelicalism. So what's up with that? Uh, the other, <clears throat> the other sort of piece that led me down the road to writing this book is uh, when my friend Luke Stamps, uh, who is a friend of all of ours, uh, came to Cal Baptist. He, we started reading books together. And so I would pick a book and he would pick a book. And one of the books he picked was on uh, the topic of the eternal generation of the sun. And again, here was a line in, in this time in the Nicene Creed that um, had come under fire by evangelicals as supposedly unsupported by scripture, or at least it was questionable whether it was supported by scripture or not. And so I started writing about that and that got me into uh, thinking about the Trinity, writing in various ways about the Trinity, doctrine of the Trinity. And so, you know, those two things converge um, with the dissent in that here's a creedal line in the Apostles Creed and in the Athanasian Creed that evangelicals are highly uncomfortable with, um, coupled, coupled with um, sort of the academic bent that I had started on, which was towards retrieval projects. Um, first with the term generation and then with this descent uh, issue. And so it was really a combination of um, scholarship and prayer, if I can put it that way, that, that led me to think about this. Well, thanks. I mean, you know, the reality for probably uh, all of us in this discussion and maybe many listening is that um, the retrieval and uh, creedal uh, discussions and uh, liturgical discussions um, were part of a journey, right? Not necessarily saying that we um, were uh, switching uh, confessions or, uh, you know, uh, traditions necessarily, but just the idea of how can uh, the evangelicalism to which uh, many of us were reared and uh, perhaps really are, are uh, fond of and want to continue to see flourish is um, is how to keep these conversations in front of um, both thinkers, but also our people. Um, and so, you know, as you think about it, um, what are ways in which you have imagined, um, you know, say someone picks up your book, uh, does a reading through it, maybe they have a small group uh, reading with uh, some like-minded friends. Um, what would you imagine uh, a few of the things that you'd want them to come away with, like what what would be some wins for you as the author to say, if someone started thinking this way or practicing this way, what, what would those things be? Sure. Well, there are a few different ones that I would say, and, and I try to summarize some of this in my last chapter, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, I think honestly, one place to start is for, since this is a recovery of a creedal line, one place to start is for evangelicals to be willing to say the creeds in church, right? And so when I, when I say evangelicals, I mean mostly uh, mostly traditions that don't do that regularly. Uh, and so, of course, there are ev- others who would consider themselves evangelicals that do say the creeds weekly. Um, but for the, the variety of evangelicals that don't say the creeds weekly, I would just say, yeah, this is a, you know, part of, the, part of saying the creeds weekly is to is to get the summary of the faith down in your bones um, so that you know it. And in that respect, you know, my encouragement would be 
not just to say the creeds, but to say this particular line, because there are other traditions uh, that say the creeds regularly, whether it's weekly or monthly or whatever, um, but they don't say this particular line. So they're, they're excising this particular credo clause. And, you know, the, the big burden at the beginning of the book is to talk about, I mean, the first chapter is about evangelicals and scriptural authority as it relates to creeds. But in the second and third chapters, the, the burden of the book is to demonstrate the biblical warrant for believing this doctrine. And then the, the historical, what I would call the historical misunderstanding that's been perpetrated by recent evangelicals with respect to its development in particularly the Apostles' Creed, right? So there, there are basically two lines of argument that say we shouldn't say this line. And they are that this doctrine is not biblical and that this doctrine was not in the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed. And so in chapters two and three of the book, the burden is to, to debunk both of those claims. Uh, other than that, I would say, you know, the, the pastoral side of this is really important to me. Um, so we communicate to people when they uh, are facing death themselves or when a loved one has died or a loved one is facing death, we communicate to them the hope of the resurrection. And absolutely that is 100% the ultimate hope that Christians have is the resurrection from the dead. Uh, that is, that is grounded in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But in between now and then, right, there's still hope. It's not, it's not uh, ultimate hope, but there's still an intermediate hope for those who are about to, or are entering the intermediate state at death. And that hope is this, that Jesus has already experienced death for them. He didn't just die one moment and rise again the next moment, but he remained dead. And so he actually has walked through the valley of the shadow of death before us. And as we enter into it, we enter into it knowing that he has gone through it for us with a light to go on ahead. And also that he's there with us. He's present with us. And now not only is um, the one incarnate, but the one who is become incarnate, lived, died, and risen again. He's the risen Lord that's in, in, in our presence. And we're in his presence, really, in the intermediate state. And so um, there's, a, there's an, a hope there, a pastoral hope, that is not ultimate. The intermediate state is not the final state. I don't want to be really clear about that. The intermediate state is not the final state. It's not the final state of bliss. It's not the place we're waiting on. We're waiting on Jesus to return and for everybody to receive uh, new bodies. And for those who trust in Christ to um, live with him eternally in the new heavens and new earth, that's the final ultimate hope. Right? But in between now and then, there's this pastoral care piece um, that I think we can also give to people, which is that Jesus has walked through the valley of the shadow of death before us and conquered it. Well, I love that. Yeah. And I think, yeah, as you wrap up your text, you um, talk about the, the missional aspect of the descent. Uh, and as you were just communicating there, the, the good news of Christ's defeat uh, of death and uh, how that is the gospel proclamation that should uh, be at the forefront of the mission of the church. So I think that's incredibly helpful. Sean, what questions do you have for Matt here? Yeah, no, th those are, those are really helpful thus far just to think, how do we think about this for Christians today? How do we think about this for evangelicalism and the Protestant tradition for today? Yeah. So just to kind of even let our listeners know, we're going to do two rounds of these. 
uh, in this round or two interviews, sorry, uh, of, of this. And really this first interview, we just want to hear from Matt and highlight his book. This is, this is really helpful. Uh, in a forthcoming um, discussion, we're going to have, we're going to invite one of our other fellows in, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Haken. And we're going to have more critical discussion about this. I, I think uh, if we were to put, if we were to map this all out, there's a little bit of disagreement about how does it actually work and where is it found in history. But that'll be another time, another place. Right now, we're we just want to hear from Matt and hear his voice on on the topic. And so, Matt, I, I would love to hear kind of uh, two kind of ideas or two items from you, um, especially within evangelicalism. Bible only traditions are here. So it's so, so part of this is where is this in the text? And then secondly, I, I really appreciated the second half of your book is where you attempted to think about this dogmatically. I would love to hear you flesh out just kind of on a personal end. You already touched on the descent and uh, the comforts of death, but you walk through dogmatic categories. I would be curious to know which one surprised you the most that you enjoyed the most thinking about, writing about, so forth and so on. So two, two different questions. Would love to hear where is this found in the scriptures? And then on a, just kind of on a reflective end, uh, dogmatically, what kind of surprised you in this study? Sure. Yeah. And by the way, apologies if you hear my kids screaming in the background. It is the, it is the <laughs> time is, of COVID-19. It, it's that season. This is our season. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So uh, just very briefly on the, the biblical question, um, because there's a number of ways that you can get at this, but I would just say, just to summarize in, in as quick a fashion as I can, I'm happy to dig in on any of this that you want to, but uh, there's just, there's the bare affirmation that Jesus experienced death as all humans do. And when I say experience death as all humans do, I mean that the body dies and the soul departs to the place of the dead. And uh, that is affirmed in Matthew 12, 40, where Jesus is talking about the sign of Jonah. That's affirmed. I believe in Acts 2, uh, in Peter's sermon where he uh, quotes David um, and, and saying that Jesus' soul won't uh, remain in Hades. Uh, I think that's affirmed in Romans 10 where Paul talks about who will descend into the abyss. Uh, and so just at a, at a bare minimum, saying that Jesus descended to the dead is an affirmation that he died like all humans do. And in so doing, it's not just that his body ceases to function. It's that his soul actually departs to the place of the dead. And, you know, again, we can dig in on any of this, but that would require us to understand what um, Greco-Roman and Second Temple Jewish persons believed about the place of the dead. Um, for, me to say, for me to be able to say it's not just bodily death, it's also the soul residing somewhere. But nevertheless, I think that's what those texts refer to. Um, and then there are a couple of other affirmations that, that, that traditionally the descent doctrine uh, affirms. And, and those are that the descent is a victorious proclamation in the place of the dead. And then also uh, that it, is, it, it includes the release of uh, the captives. And so for the victory element, I would go to Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Uh, and then... Revelation 1.18, and for the proclamation aspect of that, I'd go to 1 Peter 3.18 through 22. So the idea, very simply stated, is that Jesus experiences death as all humans do, and in doing so by virtue of his uh, incarnation as God the Son, he's victorious over death. 
while he is in the place of the dead, he proclaims his victory over death, hell, and the grave. That, that's good news for those who believe in him, and it's not good news for those who don't. And that when he rises again, that necessarily changes. It, it, in biblical terms, it releases the prisoners. Um, death is no longer a prison. Uh, it's now the place where you reside with the incarnate Messiah. Um, and so th those are the three basic affirmations of the descent doctrine. Those are the texts that I would uh, point to. And as far as the dogmatic portion, um, the most interesting, you know, I think I had, I had a lot of fun talking about baptism and the descent just because it's a big theme in our oh, yeah. church. Sure. Obviously, sure. as a Baptist, I like talking about baptism. <laughs> um, so that was fun. Uh, you know, the, the, the foray into this was actually the eschatology chapter. That was the first time that I ever really thought about this. And um, so just, just thinking back on that, that was the first time I'd explored the descent at all, really. And then I explored it in relation to eschatology. Um, I think that probably the, I don't want to say easiest, but, but the chapter that I, the chap, the dogmatic chapters that I feel like are maybe where this discussion of the descent matters the most are in the chapters on the Trinity and Christology. And there are a couple of different reasons for that with respect to the Trinity chapter, you know, the, the, the most common current view of the descent is uh, Hanser's von Balthasar's view. And it's taken to really, I would say more extremes in both Moltmann and Alan Lewis's popularization of both of those scholars ideas. And in, in those three scholars ideas of the dis idea of the descent, it's a, some kind of separation between the father and the son on Holy Saturday in hell. And for, for Balthazar, he's very, he's very clear. Well, I'm not sure clear is the right word, but he's insistent that that separation is only existential and not ontological. I don't find that really convincing, but he, he's, he's more insistent on that. Whereas Moltmann and even Alan Lewis, um, it's unclear slash maybe they're really pushing towards some kind of ontological separation between the hypostases of father and son. And I just find that entirely problematic with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. So I feel like that's an important chapter. And then I feel like um, the Christology chapter as well, if, you know, and we can get into this maybe if you want to, but uh, in the early church, and I was just reading um, last night, um, some quotes from Gregory of Nyssa's uh, treatise against Apollinarius where he's talking about the descent in relation to Apollinarianism. And that, that was a key doctrine for rejecting Apollinarianism. Uh, so if Jesus has both a body and a soul, when we're confessing that he died and was buried, um, Apollinarians can say, well, sure, he died and was buried and he rose again. Right. But if you say he died and was buried and he descended to the dead, that is, his soul departed to the place of the dead, that would be an impossible doctrine for Apollinarians to affirm. Uh, and That's so the right. descent was, was a key doctrine in rejecting Apollinarianism uh, in the early church. I, I would relate that, and I'm not equating Apollinarianism to current views of theological anthropology, so please don't hear me saying that, but 
I think that the dissent serves similar purposes in arguing against uh, versions of physicalism and or hylomorphic dualism of the animalist sort or monism, uh, et cetera. In, in other words, any theological anthropology that rejects the ability of the soul to persist upon death. And I, again, I'm not calling any of those views heresy, like we would refer to Apollinarianism as heresy. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that the, the, the dissent doctrine um, plays a similar, similar role in arguing against that particular view. Right. In that if you affirm a view of Christ's descent in which his human soul departs to the place of the dead, then that necessarily rules out any theological anthropological view that would deny Jesus a persistent human soul after death. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, I think that's important too, just in terms of contemporary theological discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's, it's really helpful. It's really clear. And it's just, it's helpful to hear how it's even situated in terms of an act of retrieval to theological retrieval in this sense. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, this is really helpful. And Matt, we so appreciate you just kind of spending a few moments with us to, to have this quick discussion, quick highlight of your book. And we, we look forward uh, even to discussion number two, where we're going to be able to dive into, dive into these topics uh, in a little bit more in depth and really looking forward to it. It's yeah. friends, friends around a table talking about a really good doctrine and, yeah. and, how, and how can we do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I just want to thank you again, Matt, for the way in which, um, yeah, you conclude the book. And I think that's appropriate for our times. Uh, and even as we've had this conversation, um, um, my wife sent me a message about a dear friend whose daughter is in the hospital suspected of coronavirus uh, and is on a ventilator. So uh, just praying for uh, that individual. Uh, and then just as we as we think about the hope that we have in Christ, um, that, um, he, um, defeated death to remove, uh, its, uh, hold on his people and to alleviate fear. Um, doesn't mean we don't struggle. Doesn't mean we don't have times where we doubt, but, uh, that it would be a hopeful way of looking at the work of Jesus Christ. And that as you, conclude the the work very aptly maranatha come lord jesus so i think in our season now and especially as we look towards good friday uh and for some hopefully a a good reflection upon holy saturday uh that this this conversation and this book would be a, a good opportunity uh to consider that uh, and to consider the work of christ on our behalf so again matt thank you for this thank you for this time uh, i know it's been hard for uh, just our current season to carve out the right time uh, for this, this discussion. And uh, we're all um, overloaded in some senses. I know our, list, our listeners, whether in schools or churches, wherever they're at, uh, some of them are feeling this pressure. Uh, so thank you for the time. And hopefully this can be an encouragement to them as they consider what's coming uh, in the calendar of the church the next few days. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always fun to, to chat. So I appreciate it. All right, man. We'll look forward to next Sounds time. Sounds good, Matt. We'll talk soon. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Be sure to check us out at ancientchristianstudies.com.